Well, it's an honor to be with you here this morning. I had the honor of being part of the Karn Conference this weekend. And I want to say, I don't believe in flattery because I find it offensive. So I'm really saying this honestly. Per capita, and I travel a fair amount, per capita, I have not found a community or even your church, I haven't found a community that does as much in the area of mental health and recovery and healing discipleship as this community, per capita. And so uh, good on you. What you have is rare. And it's, it's an honor to be part of that. Um, sometimes when I travel, because I'm on video on, in the Freedom Session teachings, and as I travel and people who have taken Freedom Session come up to me and say, you look just like you do on the videos. And I'm thinking, well, sorry to disappoint you, but <laughs> not sure what you were expecting. So uh, it's great to be here. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles or your phone to John chapter 8. I'm going to read the first verse to kick this off, and then I'm going to give you the context. Chapter 7, verse 53 and 8, verse 1 are kind of combined um, in the, the way it's written there, or at least in our English languages. And it starts off with um, they, referring to the Pharisees. Now, Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were kind of like the elders or the board of directors of the church. But they had a lot of power and they had a lot of authority and they, had a, they were looked up to. They had a pretty good life. It starts off with, they went each to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to pray. Well, he didn't say to pray, but probably to pray, because that's what Jesus would typically do at the end of a long day of ministry. He would go to the Mount of Olives to be alone with his heavenly Father and pray. Let me give you the context. A few hours earlier, the same group of people, the Pharisees, actually sent the temple guard to arrest Jesus. In those days, the temple actually had its own military. It's kind of like your church has its own military, which would be great for church discipline, but <laughs> that's not why they had it. They, they had it because the, the, the social and the legal and the religious was all linked together in those days, and they could really enforce uh, their religious laws. Anyway, so they sent the temple guard to go arrest arrest Jesus. What had been happening was Jesus had been teaching and preaching and people were leaving the church. I'll use the word church as it's a temple. People were actually leaving the church because they, they found a measure of love and authority and authenticity in the preaching of Jesus that they didn't find in the church. And as they were leaving the church, the church felt threatened or the religious leaders felt threatened. Their way of life, their control, their power was threatened. And so they decided to shut this guy down and they sent him to sent the temple guard to arrest him. The problem was the temple guard, the military go there and Jesus is teaching and they were mesmerized by his teaching. And they too felt there's something different about this guy and even though Jesus preaches, he pulls no punches, there's a love and there's an attractiveness to him and there's a hope. There's a grace and a truth that, that was exuding from Jesus that they wanted and so they didn't arrest him. But they had to go back to the Pharisees, and they go back to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees say, well, where's Jesus? And they said, well, this thing happened. He was teaching, and we've just never heard anyone teach like him before. So the Pharisees, they resorted to intimidation. They said, what, you're not thinking of believing this garbage too, are you? Do any of us, the learned, the smart people, do any of us, the learned, are we buying into this? The crowds are following him because they're stupid. You're not buying into it as well, are you? And that's when Nicodemus speaks up. Nicodemus was what you would call a guba, growing up born again, grew up in the church, grew up in the, in the, the temple. 
He was a Pharisee. But, and he, but he was a secret believer. Remember Nicodemus? He's the guy that went to, John, to Jesus in John 3 at night. Went to Jesus at night, and he too intuitively knew that the religion he was following and the, the whole lifestyle of the, the temple wasn't providing the abundant life that Jesus was preaching about. He knew someone was missing. In fact, he, and he came, you know what a Pharisee is? The longer you hang out in church, you start thinking that Pharisees are bad people. But you know what Pharisees are? They're people that actually did what the Bible said to the letter. They just missed the heart in it. He was a Pharisee, and he went to Jesus at night and says, I'm doing all these things. What do I got to do to inherit eternal life? He just knew, and that defines some of you. You've been in church a long time, but you just know something's missing. There's just some emptiness gnawing at your soul. I'm doing all these things, Lord. What's, what's missing? That's what Nicodemus, he went to, to Jesus at night. Anyway, he stands up. He was, was a secret believer. Do you know that as a believer, as a Christian, if you hang out in church and you grow up in church, when and if you really decide to follow Jesus with all your mind, heart, and soul, sometimes there's persecution from your family and from the people around you. Sometimes there's persecution because we're idiots and we're arrogant and we're, you know, we say stupid things, but you know, we think we're better than people. That, that, then we get persecution. That's our fault. But sometimes when you really want to follow Jesus, and that's what's going to happen to Nicodemus here. And I know there's a number of secret believers among us. What I mean is, is we live our lives, we really, really never share our faith. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is why are there so few people that share their faith? Why, why are churches not growing with new believers? And I, and I, I think we can, we can dissect that a number of ways, but I think that one of the biggest reasons there's so few people come to Jesus today is because so few of us as Christians have non-Christian friends. We have non-Christian acquaintances. And, we, and a lot of us say, I got lots of friends at work. We know they're acquaintances, they're colleagues. And one of the reasons why I think that we don't become really involved in non-Christians' lives is because if you really become friends with someone who doesn't know Jesus, and you have a theological understanding of heaven and hell, hell is a place that God created for people that don't want a relationship with him, and if I begin to have a relationship with you, I begin to care about you, and I will have an emotional distance, a cognitive dissonance here. I love this, I'm starting to love this person, but they're going to hell. And, and, and so it's easier just to keep them at a distance as colleagues. Let me give you an assignment. If you haven't had no, real non-Christians in your home, you work with people, you live with people, you go to school with people, whatever, this is what I'm inviting you to do in the next month. Invite a non-Christian couple, if you're married, to dinner. If you're, if you're single, invite uh, a bunch of non-Christian uh, non people to dinner. Make sure the dinner's good. <laughs> and during the dessert, just say, tell me your story. And they're going to say, what do you mean, tell me your story? Well, you were born and now you're here. What happened in the middle? And just listen. And 80% chance they're going to ask you at the end, tell us your story. And they just tell your story. If they talk 15 minutes, you talk 15 minutes. If they talked only seven, your story's got to be only seven. But in your story, include your God story, your Jesus story, and don't make it weird. <laughs> and don't make it that you go to church, because they already probably know that. Tell your story when you met Jesus and what he's doing in your life now. And by the way, your testimony is not your conversion. If your conversion happened 20 years ago, don't tell them about that. You can tell them about that, but what is Jesus doing? What difference does Jesus make in your life? And just include that as maybe one-fifth of your story or maybe one-quarter of your story of your relationship with Jesus and, and just... Talk about it as if it's the most normal thing in the world and then just 
end the story and have finish your dessert. Just start there. Um, and what'll happen is you begin to love people and that'll cause you to pray for people. It's hard to love people and know that they've got a hopeless eternity and more people will come to Jesus. It's actually quite simple. What I mean by that is there used to be a phrase that said, and we all loved it, said, preach at all times and when, when necessary, use words. That's a terrible statement because people will not come to Jesus because of the way I mow my lawn or because they see my driveway empty on Sunday mornings or they know that I go to church and then they know that I serve in children's ministry. That will not bring people to Jesus. They need to know my story. And if you don't have a current story of what Jesus is doing in your life, then I encourage you to take one of the programs that's offered in the community, Freedom Session, or there's other programs. I don't know what they all are, but I would take one and, and, and find the healing. And one of the other reasons why so few people share their faith is because their faith hasn't made a difference in the core areas of their heart. So that'd be my encouragement on the secret believer part. But back to our, our, uh, our story here. Nicodemus takes a step and he says to the rest of the Pharisees, does our law allow us to condemn a man without first hearing a story? And then what the Pharisees did, they resorted to bullying to Nicodemus. First they intimidated the temple guard, now they're gonna bully because they gotta shut this down. They started to bully Nicodemus and they said, what's wrong with you? Are you from Troshu? I actually said, <laughs> yeah, we've heard that all the way from Vancouver. <laughs> he said, are you from Galilee? Don't read the, read the Bible, read the Old Testament. You know that no prophet ever comes from Galilee. They intimidated him. They tried to embarrass him and humiliate him because we've got to shut this down. And then that's when they each went to their own house after they shut Nicodemus down. But apparently not everyone went to their own house because some of the Pharisees were up all night. We're going to pick up the story. Verse 2. Early in the morning, Jesus went, Jesus, uh, early in the morning, Jesus again came to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees who were up all night, the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman who'd been caught in adultery. I was once asked to preach this text in a, in a, in a fairly large church and they gave me the text because it was part of their series and then they said, oh, by the way, right before I came, they said, by the way, this is one of two Sundays in the year that we invite all the children and all the families to make sure it's secret or family friendly. I think, well, why did you give me the adultery passage? So I had to come up with a, a, a term from adul for adultery, a definition of adultery that a child could understand, and this is what I came up with. Adultery is taking something special that belongs to someone else. That's not a bad definition for adults either. Adultery is taking something special that belongs to someone else. Anyway, the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery. And, and, uh, and they put him before Jesus and said, now in the law, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? It actually says, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery, putting her in the midst. They said, teacher, this woman's been caught in the, in the act of adultery. Scripture says, Moses told us to stone such women, what do you say? So what they did is what they really did. They, they found a woman or if they found a man who was willing to be caught and filmed in adultery. They found a man, and then they identified a woman. They probably paid off the man, because he was just a pawn. They just needed him to get the woman there, because the, the, the law wouldn't stone the men. They just stoned the women. And then they found a vulnerable woman. She was probably an outcast, maybe. Maybe she was divorced. Maybe she was a single mom. She was probably lonely, but she was not a volunteer. And with the pornography epidemic going on in our culture, where 50 to 70% of men who attend church indulge pornography, around 40% of women indulge pornography on a regular basis to some degree, 
I want to try and make it unattractive to you for a minute and understand that on the edge, the other end of the camera is a real person who was once a little boy or a little girl who never dreamed of being a porn star. In fact, 85%, around 85% of the pornography available today is in the sex trafficking trade. It's not volunteers. And realize that when you view pornography, I know it's already out there, but you're taking something special that belongs to another. And I know by not viewing it, that won't actually release these people from the slavery. But it, eventually, if the well would dry up of people watching it, there'd be less of it there. Plus, it'd be a lot more honoring to your current spouse or your future spouse or your children. Anyway, back to our story. Both the, men, both the man and the woman in this story were pawns. They were uh, for a greater scheme. They would, be, they would be sacrificed for a greater good. In fact, verse 6 says, they brought this woman in, in front of Jesus and said that our law commands us to stone her. What do you say? They actually did all of this scene to test Jesus, to try and catch him in a technicality of the law. Does anyone see anything strange with that? The Pharisees, the leaders, the religious leaders, the ones who were to be trusted, who were actually entrusted by God with the very law, the people were supposed to live a certain way. They were supposed to create a culture like this church, create a culture in which people would live in such a way and God would bless in such a way that the whole world would be attracted to God. These were the Pharisees. And they just planned a murder to catch Jesus in a technicality of the law and they didn't see anything strange with that. And the application is, for us in, in church, it is possible sometimes for us to be so focused on what's right and what's wrong that we can execute people in our minds and not even realize there's something wrong with that. We might even mean well, but our hearts have missed the whole point. See, this woman would be found guilty. The sentence would be execution by stoning. And I used to think, before I studied it, that stoning would be, they throw stones at you, they hit your head, and you get knocked out and you die. That would actually be merciful, but that's not how they stoned people then, and that's not how they stone people now. They still stone people today in some cultures. What actually happens is you pick up little rocks, small rocks, and you aim them at the abdomen to inflict internal bleeding and as much suffering as possible. And the way the person actually dies is they drown in their own blood. And that's what would happen to this woman. Not only that, it's your friends, it's the community, it's the actual community. It would be like someone in this church that was deemed guilty of a sin and we take them out in the parking lot after the service and kill them. It's your very people that you hung out with in the community. That's what would happen to this woman. Back to our story, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. They had no video then. So for that to happen, if you envision the story, you would have the Pharisees set up the whole room. They would be behind curtains. The man and the woman would come in and they would listen to the seduction, the heavy breathing, the moaning. And then at just a triggered time, they would pull back the curtains and there would be the couple exposed, covers coming up over naked bodies, shock, uh, uh, disillusionment. And then there would be the nod to the guy so he could escape the room. And the woman would be left there exposed naked, alone, and guilty, betrayed when she realized the man didn't even care about her. It was a setup all along. She was betrayed again. I want to take a minute to address two groups of people who can probably identify with this woman. The first group is those who choose to live life in the shadows. 
Those would be people, and you know, you would know who you are. You have secret behaviors, and yet you want to or you pretend to follow Jesus. It might be sexual immorality, pornography, an affair, or fantasy. It might be escape by drugs or alcohol. Maybe you terminated a pregnancy and live with that shame. Maybe you're going through a divorce or caused a divorce, or maybe you're planning to divorce. Or maybe you have an emotional divorce, and emotional divorce is rampant in the church where two people will never divorce each other because they're Christians, but they both know that the marriage is dead. Maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's gossip, maybe it's exaggeration, maybe it's financial deception on your income tax. Good question to ask, is there anything in my life, if exposed, would cause shame to my name, my family, the church, in the name of Jesus Christ? My application there is, please don't wait until you get caught in the act. Please don't wait if you've got secrets going on. The consequences for coming forward before you get caught are almost always less. Don't wait till you get caught. Sometimes we think we're getting away with it. But understand that Satan, first of all, when God gives us time, it's grace. It gives us time to, to own things and bring them before him. And there's no condemnation. You heard that already. There's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. I don't want anyone to feel condemned here today. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Satan, God gives us grace to come forward and own what we did. Just like in the Garden of Eden, he comes to the man and the woman and says, what have you done? When, when Cain killed his brother, God, God comes to Cain and says, what have you done? Gives an opportunity to own it. Satan is patient and Satan, if we think we're getting away with it, understand you're not. Satan's patient and he will wait until he can inflict the most damage he can in your life and relationships before he exposes you. So when God, when God convicts us, that's actually a gift from him. So that'd be my encouragement. I know that Freedom Session's starting somewhere in your, in your county here or your area or there's other ministries. Those are ministries there to give you a safe place to, to deal with some of those things in a, in a grace-filled environment that loves you enough to accept you but loves you also enough to not to leave you where you're at. So that'd be my encouragement if you're one of those people. The second group of people... I want to address here would be those who've been exploited, betrayed, or abandoned, and as, re as a result, you live life in the shadows. Now describe those of you who are vulnerable and someone took advantage of you and told you it was your fault. You were betrayed by the people who were supposed to protect you, perhaps. You were used, perhaps, for someone else's pleasure. You were not guilty for that. But a lot of us found ways to cope and we are guilty or responsible for the unhealthy ways we've learned to cope. We didn't all use drugs or alcohol or pornography. Some used bitterness. Some used gossip. Some used control. Some used fantasy. Some used performance. I was sharing at the conference, so when I became a Christian 19, I had a serious alcohol addiction. And after I gave that up and dealt with that, I still had, I was still as broken inside. I lived with 24-7 guilt. I didn't know people could wake up in the morning and not feel guilty. So guess what, I, I just traded in that drug of choice for another drug of choice, which was performance. And guess what, when you're in ministry and you're a performer, you get rewarded, you get promoted. People say you're great, you know you're not great. You just, you just get going, you gotta keep up the facade. So we can turn to anything, we can turn to work, we can turn to pleasure, we can turn to our hobbies, we can turn to whatever, we can turn to performance, we can turn to sex, we can turn to whatever. Because we were deeply wounded, you weren't guilty for the wound, but we are guilty sometimes for the way we learn to cope. My application for you is don't wait until the pain becomes unbearable or your world falls apart. Deal with it now. 
You are in a community that has more opportunity than most. Deal with it now. Find a way. Make the time. My wife would say, give yourself the gift of processing some of the hurts and failures and things that have happened in your life, even the disappointments. Because a lot of times when those things happen, Satan gets a lie in our heart and he controls us with the lie. Not the trauma, not what happened to us, but the lie we believed because of the trauma or, or whatever happened. But I also want you to listen carefully to the rest of the story. Jesus is actually brilliant. We know he's brilliant, but remember, they, they brought this whole scenario to him to test him. And what Jesus does is he, verse 6b, he says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, which is proof that you don't have to answer every charge that comes against you, and you don't actually even have to answer every Facebook post. <laughs> they came with him with this question, what do you say, Jesus? We want you to respond here. And Jesus totally ignored the question and starts writing on the ground. People, some people, scholars, believe that he was writing the Ten Commandments. We don't actually know, but he totally ignored their question. Because Jesus knew intuitively what is taught in, in third-year psychology. The presenting problem is rarely the problem. This woman was not the problem. There is hurt there. This woman was not the problem for the Pharisees. It was the Pharisees' hearts. So let me just pause there and ask some of you and just take a little bit of a jaunt here. But with this, I want to address the skeptics among you. First of all, the skeptics who don't know Jesus personally, love the feeling of church, but you've never made the decision to follow Jesus. What is your best argument for not following Jesus? What's your best argument for not giving your life to Jesus? Your best argument. You know what mine was? I grew up in a Christian home, so I knew the whole thing. My best argument was nobody's going to control my life. Nobody, including God, is going to control my life, and I would rather go to hell than have someone tell me how to live. Isn't that arrogant? You see how, how, what a grip Satan had in my life? Because I felt God let me down. God couldn't be trusted. So if you feel like God has let you down, isn't it really people who let you down? Isn't it people? Are you sure it's God? Is that your best argument? Maybe you have a different one. For those of you who are Christians, what's your best argument for not following Jesus? Just accepting him as Savior and not Lord? It's your best argument. What's your best argument for not forgiving someone? It's your best argument for not forgiving. What's your best argument for not putting the Lord first in your finances? It's called tithing. What's your best argument? And I don't care if you tithe. I mean, I don't get any of it. In fact, God doesn't need it. Do you, know that, do you know that the whole thing about tithing is God actually giving you an opportunity, an opportunity to show that he's first in your finances so that he can bless? This is part of our worship. What's your best argument for not giving up pornography or alcohol or gossip or blaming or yelling? What's your best argument for giving your best energies to your hobbies or your work rather than your family at home who longs to play baseball with you or whatever the deal is? What's your best argument? What's your best argument for leaving your spouse? My point is, your best argument is likely not the real issue. The real issue is probably a wounded heart that God wants to heal. And until we get to that, all these other behaviors are not gonna work. All the other schemes that we have to get our life in check, they won't work until God deals with the heart issues. Symptoms of deeper heart issue Jesus wants to heal. Back to our story, so Jesus is writing on the ground there and it says, and then Jesus is writing down and he stands up and he says, okay, let's execute her. He who is without sin cast the first stone. And then it's so beautiful, beginning with the older ones. 
beginning with the older ones, they began to walk away. You know, the benefit of age is wisdom, it's not beauty. <laughs> Most of us have figured that out. Everything turns from hunk to chunk. <laughs> but something happens as you get older. You learn to have a lot more grace for other people. It's not a matter of right and wrong so much sometimes as it's love plus right and wrong. And you have grace for other people because you realize you need grace yourself. I'm 60 years old. You know what I'm disappointed in? I'm disappointed that I'm still sinful at heart. I thought it'd be easier by now to live by faith. I thought it would be easier now to turn all my life over to God and trust Him. But sometimes it's not, and I'm disappointed in that. And I realize that I need Jesus today as much as I did when I became a Christian. And I, I really do. I'm not flattering you. I'm not saying that to try to identify with you or, or some stupid thing like that. And I have a whole lot more grace for others. I have a whole lot more grace for others. Because I really honestly know I'm really no better than them. Yeah, the temptations change. And ways I deal with things probably look nicer than some of the people just coming off the street or just coming to Jesus. But the heart's not much better. I need Jesus as much as you do. Now we come to the primary and twofold message in the story. In essence, Jesus just saved this woman's life. Jesus just saved this woman's life. She didn't deserve it. This woman was guilty. Even though she was set up and tricked, she was still guilty. She deserved death, just like you and I. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we all know we've sinned, right? The Bible says it, and we know it. You know what sin means? It means not getting the target right all the time. It's an archery term. It just means being a little bit off-center. So we all sin. Why are we so beat up on God when he talks about sin? We always feel condemned. No, he's just bringing, he could have called it pickles. Sin is just doing something that's outside his will, that this is destructive, and he just happened to call it sin, a short word that we can remember. This woman, and, and it deserves death, but grace, Jesus just saved her just like he saved us. So what's the appropriate response to grace? What's the appropriate response to all Jesus has done for us? The first one is, he, 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 uh, the woman, uh, Jesus stands up and he says, where are all those who condemned you? And she said, they're gone, sir. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Jesus wants us to walk as a response to grace. Whatever we've done, there's a response to his forgiveness. God wants us, Jesus wants us to walk with our head held high. Whatever's been done to you, Jesus wants you to walk with your head held high. He wants you to go into whatever journey in counseling or a program or something and realize you were not guilty for the sin that was inflicted upon you. You were guilty for the sin that you did, but Jesus forgives that when you bring it to him. We don't have a sin problem. We have an acknowledgement of sin problem. Every sin we've ever committed, including the sin sins we're going to commit on Wednesday have already been paid for. It's grace, and he wants us to walk with our head held high. As was read before, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. In that same service where I was preaching to when the ch children were in there as well, um, I decided we got to make this verse simpler, so I paraphrased it, and let's, I wanted you, you to memorize it with me. There is no condemnation for me. Let's try that. There is no condemnation for me. Try it again. There is no condemnation for me because Jesus paid for my sin. Let's put it together. There is no condemnation for me because Jesus paid for my sin and thinks I'm okay. 
Let's try it all together. There is no condemnation for me because Jesus paid for my sin and thinks I'm okay. Try it one more time. There is no condemnation for me because Jesus paid for my sin and thinks I'm okay. But I don't think I'm okay. But Jesus does. Who's right and who's wrong? Part, Jesus is. So part of the response to grace is gonna be accepting by faith that what Jesus says about me is true. Because for years, we've been living and accepting by doubt what Satan has said to be true. You're a screw-up. You're damaged goods. You'll never measure up. You're a lust bucket. You're a failure. You're a liar. All these things, maybe there was a nugget of truth and we did some of those things, but now we've taken on that identity and it's a lie. So part of the response is actually, I accept that there is no condemnation for me because Jesus pays for sins and thinks I'm okay. What others and I think about me is irrelevant. And begin walking in that. Now, I won't fix everything. It's a heck of a start. And you know what else? When I begin to think I'm okay because of what Jesus did, that's when I have grace for other people because it's really tricky for a relatively good person to think you're okay because of what you do. because I give 10% of my income and because I serve 20 hours a week and because I play ball with my kids, I'm a pretty good dad. But I'm also a dad who's made some big mistakes that has hurt my wife and my kids and other people. So it's all true. How do I walk with my head? How do I stand up here? Because Jesus has forgiven my sins and thinks I'm okay. And that's it. So that's the first thing. A lot of us like to do that. That's the first response to grace. The other one is just as difficult to implement, but it's not quite as popular. It's just as important, though. The second thing Jesus said to her, verse he says, no, I, I don't condemn you. And he says, now go and leave your life of sin. Stop sinning. The second thing Jesus wants us to do is response to grace is stop sinning. Now I get it. You know, we, we're not sinless, Right? We know we're going to sin. Jesus knows we're going to sin. There's going to be hiccups. There's going to be stumbles. There's going to be struggles. There's going to be falls. We're going to mess up sometimes. We're not sinless, but we can sin less. In fact, some of us can sin a whole lot less. You think about it today. You know what? I bet you you can go the rest of the service without sinning. That means no texting. <laughs> you, know, you know what? Maybe you can go. I, I bet you some of you can make it till 2 p.m. No sin. Maybe you can make it till 6 p.m. No sin. What if you could make it till 10 p.m. and go to bed and pray when you go to bed and no sin the rest of the day? Wow. You might be able to do that for two days. Do you see what I'm saying? Sometimes we, we get the grace of God and we take it so lightly that we don't actually realize that sin is offensive to God. It hurts God, but it also hurts us and hurts the relationships around us. This woman, a lot of the problems in this woman's life were the result of her poor choices. There's a little quote that says, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is I made a stupid decision. And sometimes we blame everything on Satan, and some of it's our own st willful stupidity. Satan doesn't even have to work to trap us up sometimes. Sometimes he does. Stop sinning. A number of years ago, <coughs> 2006, I went to a cardiologist because I developed a little bit of a heart problem. And uh, I had this little Egyptian cardiologist, and uh, she was about five foot two, little lady, very smart. 
And she looked up at me very boldly and said, Ken, you got two problems. One is sort of systemic. It has to do with your hereditary and some weaknesses in your body. Um, and, and then the other part is your lifestyle, uh, the stress you keep, the non-exercise, and what you eat. So we have to come up with a two-fold strategy here. We want to address, we want, we do, there are ways to address some of the systemic issues in your heart and strengthen that. But the other one is you got to stop eating nacho chips. You got to start exercising. You got to stop carrying so much stress. You might need to work a little bit less. And so I did what any good red-blooded male would do. I stopped going to my cardiologist and I feel a lot better. <laughs> no, do you see, no matter how much we talk about the grace of God and how much he loves you, you can walk with your head held high. If we continue to keep doing the things that cause us guilt and shame and pain and screw up our relationships, we will never feel close to God. This is the danger. This is the danger of, of walking um, with uh, willful sin. It is a mistake to seek and ask God's forgiveness for something I intend to keep doing and have no desire or no intent to change. And here's some of the consequences. You might still get to heaven. I hope you do because our relationship, we're going to heaven's based on a relationship with God. But you will never feel close to God if you continue in willful sin. You will never have spiritual authority and any power in your prayers. You'll have some power, but it'll be distant. You won't have much credibility to speak into the lives of your family and your children and other things. Um, and you will never be free from Satan's activity in your life because your sin opens doors for Satan to mess up your life in certain areas. These are some of the consequences in your relationships. If there's secret sin in your life or willful sin in your life, you've got to hide that. Just like Adam and Eve, the first thing they did is hide. And you've got to hide it because you believe the lie that if you knew everything about me, you wouldn't love me. And so we don't bring things up. And yet the Bible says in Proverbs 28, 13, the man who conceals his, his, his sin will not prosper. The man who conceals it will not prosper. We might get away with it, for all, but God can't bless that. So we're always striving. There's a good question. Is there are you always striving? And is there anything that God's asked you to do that you're just not going to do? Again, no condemnation, but I need to read a very solemn warning from Scripture. And I know that there's different theologies on this. I'll share with you mine. You can debate it if you want. But you have to wrestle with this warning at some point. It's from Hebrews. It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after receiving the full knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins remains, but only a fearful expectation of the fire and, and the judgment that will consume the enemies of God. And you can say that's written to non-Christians, but it's written to the Hebrews. What I mean is, it appears that there's no forgiveness applied to our account for unrepentant and willful premeditated sin, which means I've got to pay for it myself. The reason is because premeditated, willful, intentional sin, we're not sorry for it. And I'm not suggesting that every time we sin, stumble, or indulge in sinful behavior, we lose our right standing with God. Jesus knows we're going to stumble and not always get it right. He died for my sins and for my sinfulness. What I'm talking about is the person that says in their heart, I know this is wrong. I know God doesn't want me to do this, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it today. I'm going to do it tomorrow. And then at night when I go to bed, I'm going to ask God to forgive me. And he has to forgive me because he's the Savior. I'm going to expect him to forgive me, but I've got no intention of changing it. How how can God forgive a sin like that? Because forgive means to remember it no more, to no longer hold it against, but every day I'm going to keep doing the same thing. It is really a hard issue of saying, screw you, God, I don't care. I'm going to lead my life. 
I'm going to run my life. I know this is detrimental. I know this is hurting my relationships, but that's your job to fix those relationships. I don't care. That's a rebellious, rebellious heart. And so me personally, I have a hard time believing that we can live in willful, deliberate, premeditated sin and expect God's forgiveness. At the same time, I believe there's a significant difference between sinning, messing up, and deliberately rejecting God's leadership in our lives. There's a beautiful verse of scripture that balances it out for me. It's in 2 Timothy, it says, here's a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown us, he will, if we disown him, he will disown us. But if we are faithless, get this, he will remain faithful because he cannot disown himself. When I am faithless, when I screw up, when I sin, so that's different than disowning him. Disowning him is saying, I don't care. I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to follow you anymore. I don't care what you say. That's disowning. But I, Lord, I messed up again. And he remains faithful, even when I'm faithless. So God doesn't want you to walk in condemnation. He wants you to walk with your head held high, but he also doesn't want you to walk fearful of losing your standing before God. But he does want us to stop doing some of the things that are ruining our lives and our relationships. So, straight talk on sin. What is sin? Sin's really simple to define. It's twofold. Sin is anything that I'm doing that you wish I wouldn't. God, is there anything that I'm doing that you don't want me to do? Those would be some of the sins usually, some of the ways we escape, the blame, the guilt, whatever, lying, whatever it is. And then the other one is, is there anything I'm not doing you would like me to do? Because that's sin too. If God asked me to do something, well, one time, one time God asked me to stop playing hockey, which seems bizarre, right? But I was a young pastor, and I'm not a great hockey player, so the, type, the time of day I had to play hockey was like at 11.30 at night. So Friday night I would play hockey, and then I'd be a bag of hammers for the next day for my family. And I did this for a while, and I loved playing hockey. It was, I, was my out, my vent, or whatever the thing is, and God eventually said, Ken, I want you to give up playing hockey. But I didn't want to. And at that point, it became a sin. Not to, for me, playing hockey became a sin. See, it's not always the sinful things. It's whatever God asks you to do. Maybe he's asked you to forgive someone. Maybe he's asked you to get involved in something. Maybe he's asked you to invite someone for dinner. I don't know what he's asked you to do. Is there anything that he's asked you to do that you're, you're not? And if you don't know, we simply ask the Holy Spirit of God. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out in me anything that offends you and lead me in the way everlasting. Again, no condemnation. No condemnation. You're already right before God. Now he's just asking you, Lord, test my heart. You point out anything in my life that this week you want me to work on. And then as best I can, I do it. So that's how I want to close. I want to close in prayer. And we're going to ask God, the Holy Spirit, we're going to ask him those two questions and listen to what he says. And remember, he's coming in love, just like the woman. No condemnation here, Sally, Jim. But you're asking, so this is in your life that you're doing that I wish you wouldn't because it's hurting you, it's hurting me, it's hurting other people. Or this is not in your life that I wish you would put it in your life. Lord Jesus, thank you for leaving this story in Scripture. Thank you for your grace and your love to the woman who is guilty, like us. 
Thank you that you've taken away condemnation over us and the enemy's lies over our lives. You've broken the power of that. And thank you too that you would love us enough to point out the things in our lives that are offensive to you, defensive to others, and are ruining our lives and relationships, destroying our joy. So we come humbly to you this morning and ask you those questions. Lord Jesus, is there anything I'm doing you wish I would stop? Is there anything secret in my life that you wish I would disclose? And secondly, Lord Jesus, is there anything that I'm not doing that you wish I would? Please bring it to my mind. Thank you again, Lord Jesus, for your grace your willingness to meet us where we're at, and your willingness to guide us in the way everlasting. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the word of God that's sharper than a two-edged sword. Pray that it does its work in our hearts today. And Lord, I pray that we have the courage to seek out help where we need it and the humility. Lord, help us to be obedient and to trust you and to obey you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.